I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. If this is your first time here, this is our second week going through the book of James. And last week we talked about the background of the book of James, and I want to revisit that really quickly. Because understanding the background of a book of the Bible is an absolutely key part of understanding what it means for us today. Because we've got authors writing thousands of years ago in completely different places and completely different circumstances. And so if we're going to better understand what this means for our lives today in a totally different world, then we need to know the background of the book. So last week we talked about how James is the younger brother of Jesus. And he's probably writing this letter from Jerusalem around 45 to 48 A.D. And that would make this by far one of the earliest New Testament books written. And he's writing to a group called the Dispersion. And this is probably primarily Jewish Christians who are living outside of Jerusalem or outside of Palestine, far away from their home base. And what we read about in James chapter 1 was James's encouragement to these Christians to be steadfast, to stay strong, not to give in, because they're facing a lot of hardships. They're facing famine. They're facing persecution. They're facing wealthy non-believers who are using their money against them. And so James tells them, don't give in. Don't give up. Stay steadfast. But then today we're going to finish out chapter 1, and then we're going to go into a little bit of chapter 2. And chapter one was all great. Stay steadfast. Sounds good. But here's the thing. James tells us that we don't do it on our own. We ask God for wisdom and that God will give us that wisdom and that God will give us that strength to maintain and stay strong. He'll give us that strength to avoid temptation. He'll give us that strength to avoid making wealth some sort of God that we worship, to avoid being double minded people. God will help us. As we stay steadfast. But today in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is where the rubber really hits the road. That all sounds really nice. That sounds good. Be strong. But this is when things get tough. This is when James starts stepping on our toes just a little bit. So before we get in today, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you that we're able to come here and worship you together worship you in safety. And God, I pray that we will never take for granted how blessed we are to have access to your word like James. And God, I pray that as we read James today, it will convict us and it will challenge us. And I pray that we won't just get defensive. I pray that we won't immediately shy away. I pray that we'll be open to what James has to tell us, even if it's hard to hear. So God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace Thank you for your love and your mercy, and thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who died for us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to James chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some scattered throughout the room underneath some of the chairs. We'll also have scripture up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls. So James starts off with this statement, this little proverbial phrase, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, if you put yourself in this original audience's shoes, you can understand why James is warning them against that. Because look at all the hardships they're facing. The famine, the persecution, the abuse by those who have more money than they do. They're going to be tempted to respond with anger. They're going to be tempted to get even, to get revenge, to put themselves all on the same level playing field. And it might even lead to violence, as we see later in the book of James. But James says, don't let your anger overtake you, because that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And so they are tempted to get angry with those who oppose their faith. Get angry with those who oppress them. And James says, don't do it. Don't let your anger control you. And unfortunately, even today, we as Christians, we have a reputation of getting angry when someone opposes our faith, when someone opposes our values, when someone calls into question our beliefs. We have a reputation for getting this bunker mentality and immediately viewing it as an us versus them type scenario. Are we called to do that? According to James, no. We're called to respond to oppression with meekness, with humility, with kindness, and with respect. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus certainly was no doormat. He often spoke up when he saw things that were wrong. He didn't just roll over and die when the Pharisees were corrupting God. This isn't about us rolling over and dying, but it is about how we respond to those who oppose us. You know, recently I was watching the news, and it was a pretty unfriendly towards Christianity news station that had this very, very traditional, very conservative preacher get on the news station. And they were interviewing him about just some of the things going on in our society and some of the things going on in politics and how the church's role all comes into this. And you could tell that the way they were asking the questions, the way they were wording things, they were trying to get a rise out of him. They were trying to make him emotional. They were trying to get him to lose his composure. And the first half of the interview, he did really well. He was respectful. He was gracious. Even when they said things that came across as a little bit rude, he maintained his cool. He didn't lose his temper. But then the second half of the interview rolled around, and you could tell they were wearing him down a little bit. And every single question they asked, every answer, he got a little bit more angry and a little bit more rude and a little bit more defensive. And ultimately, the interview ended with the interviewers laughing at this guy as he makes a fool of himself because he's angry and he's lost his temper. That did not produce the righteousness of God. That interview really made Christians look pretty bad. It confirmed the stereotype the bunker mentality, the anger, the defensiveness. And that does not produce the righteousness of God. But let's take that statement a little bit farther. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I think that's a statement that we would do well to apply, not just in times where we are being faced with opposition to our faith, but really in pretty much all times, even the trivial times. A couple weeks ago, my mom called me because she felt guilty for how she had treated someone from their cable company on the phone. 
she had called the cable company. They were, my parents were angry about the rates that were going up. They were angry that the service wasn't what they expected it to be. And so my mom got on the phone with this woman, and she went back and forth with her over and over. And the woman was not helpful. She was not very kind. She was extremely rude to my mom. And she ended up getting off the phone with my mom, and she said, well, thank you for choosing. I'll leave this company name out. Thank you for choosing. Have a nice day. And my mom said, oh, we won't be having a nice day anymore, and you won't either, because we're not going to be with you much longer. Amen, and she actually called her, she called her honey. She said, oh, honey. Uh-oh. And my mom called me, and she felt guilty about it. And she said, should I feel guilty about this? I feel like I need to repent of this. And I said, yeah, you should. And here's the thing. We think that sounds trivial how she treated someone from the cable company over the phone. But this statement, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, apply that across the board. Even in those trivial situations like telemarketers, what about when you're at your kid's football game or soccer game or baseball game and the ref makes a terrible call? Are we quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? What about when we're at the restaurant and the waitress messes up our order? Are we quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry? Or are we slow to hear and quick to speak and quick to become angry? These situations might seem trivial, situations like telemarketers and referees and waitresses, but really they aren't. Because James challenges us to let our faith infiltrate every area of life, every relationship, because anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And then he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the implanted word. When I read that phrase, the implanted word, I couldn't help but think back to what we talked about a little bit in our series through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4 verse 13 says, and he said to them, Jesus, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Jesus says that the word is planted, but not everyone will receive the word. Not everyone will accept the word. Many will hear it, but few will respond to it. Some may respond to it and then get dragged away by other things, let other priorities get in the way. But what we see in the book of James, this idea of the implanted word, the idea of the implanted word is that this word changes you. This word, when it truly bears root in your life, your life doesn't look the same. As it did before. Because this word, this word of the gospel, it has the power to shape you and change you 
and transform you and make you look more like Christ. Because if you try to do these things on your own, you'll fail. You'll fall flat on your face. But God's word is powerful. His Holy Spirit works within us. And it helps us to put away filthiness and wickedness and to become the kind of people that are quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Pick up in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James uses this analogy of a mirror. And this analogy means nothing to me because when I look into mirrors, they break. But you get the point. You look into a mirror, and let's say you see that you have a giant smudge on your forehead. And you say, oh man, I really need to get this smudge off. I'm going to this big meeting, I'm going to this big party, I'm going to this big event. I don't want to get there and look like a fool. So I need to get this smudge off my forehead. So you walk away to go get a rag or a paper towel, and you forget it's there. And you show up to your party, you show up to your meeting, and you have a giant smudge on your forehead. If the mirror did not lead you to action, the mirror has ceased to fulfill its purpose. The word that is implanted in us, it leads to something. It leads to change. It leads to transformation. It's just a natural outpouring of that implanted word. And if that word doesn't lead to change, the question must be asked, has the word really borne root? Is it fulfilling its purpose? Or is it like that mirror that doesn't fulfill its purpose? Look in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is when James starts making some pretty bold statements. He starts saying that if you cannot bridle your tongue, if you have no care for the widow and the orphan, the least of these, the people who are oppressed, then really your religion is worthless because that's no real religion at all. And he says to keep yourself unstained from the world. You know, this might seem like a somewhat harsh illustration, but when we were dating and engaged, Olivia worked at Family Christian Bookstore. And if you've ever been to Family Christian Bookstore, you often check out at the register and they'll say, well, do you sponsor a child through World Vision? And then you typically say, uh, yeah. But sometimes you say no and sometimes you're honest, but then sometimes you say, I don't know, let me pray about it. But I remember I would go and see Olivia at Family Christian and I would always hear her make this pitch to sponsor a child from World Vision for $35 a month. It's only like stopping fast food three times a month. It's like not going to Starbucks six or seven times a month. It's so easy. Why wouldn't you do it? You can change a child's life. And I remember sometimes I would sit there watching Olivia make this pitch, and the person would say, well, I don't know, let me pray about it. 
And I remember I would look at the person, and like I said, this is going to sound harsh, I would look at the person and I would see an incredibly nice car in the parking lot, incredibly nice clothes, and they're making incredibly luxurious and unnecessary purchases. And I remember, maybe I'm being simplistic, but I would put two and two together and I would say, okay, let me get this straight. Here you're being given an opportunity to help the widow or the orphan. You're clearly capable of helping the widow and the orphan. You clearly have the means to do it. And scripture tells us to do it. And so sometimes I would look at that and think, really, what is there to pray about? This isn't so much an issue of prayer. This is more of just an issue of obedience. James makes it pretty clear that followers of Christ who have the means and the opportunity to help the widow and the orphan, you do it. It's that simple. It's not that hard of a decision. And maybe I am being simplistic. But James seems to be a little bit simplistic at times, too. I think of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. We read in that passage, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. James makes it clear that we as followers of Christ are called to help the widow and the orphan, the least of these, the downtrodden. Now we can debate all day about what the best way to do that is. Some people will say it's government programs. Some people will say it's individual charity. Some people will say it's churches or parachurch organizations. Okay, we can argue about that. But what we can't argue about is whether or not we're called to love and serve and help these people. James does not afford us the luxury of just turning a blind eye to these problems. He says that these things... The way we speak, the way we treat the downtrodden, that shows where our religion is. And that can say a whole lot about where our religion is. And he even says that if we're not doing these things, that proves that our religion is worthless. That's a pretty bold claim on James's part. But he doesn't shy away from making it. As I read this passage... I really think, you know, if we go out and see the same people every week, whether it's at work or at school or anywhere else, maybe it's our neighbors. We spend lots of time with these people. If those people only know we're followers of Christ because of the bumper sticker on our car, that's a problem. If we have to tell people that we're followers of Christ because our actions don't say anything, that's a problem. That's an issue. If someone can only tell that we're a follower of Christ by our Facebook posts, then that's a problem. Speaking of which, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We mentioned the waitress and the telemarketer. What about your Facebook? Do you show anger on your Facebook? Or do you show respect and humility? That's a big question to ask. 
Jump ahead to James chapter 2, verse 14. James kind of continues this theme of being doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I want you to remember that phrase right there at the end of verse 14. Can that faith save him? Remember that. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you don't know this, our church has a very generous benevolence budget. And this benevolence budget is used for anyone and everyone who walks through our doors who might need help with gas, who might need help with food or an electric bill or a rent payment. And we use this benevolence budget as liberally as we possibly can. We try to give as many people the benefit of the doubt as possible. And we have four people, and someone will come in looking for help. We'll have them fill out a form, and they'll submit the form, and the four people will look over it. And we'll do as much as we can to make sure that the church's money is going to a worthwhile cause. We'll check employment. We will verify residency. We'll do everything we possibly can to avoid getting hustled. And believe it or not, four or five times a week sometimes this will happen. Someone will wander in the doors and need help with something. And I'll say this. We can't help every single person with every single problem. We only have so much money to work with over the course of a year. But 99.9% of the people who walk through our doors needing help with something, they leave with help in one way or another, some form of help, whether it's a little bit of gas or maybe even a few hundred dollars for rent. We are not a church that simply looks at people and says, well, sorry, we can't help you. We have a great big budget for our stuff that benefits us, but you're on your own. Good luck. Go to the other church down the road. We are not that kind of church. And that's something that I am proud of. And that's something that you should be proud of if you are faithfully giving to Prairie View. And like I said, we have safeguards up to make sure that we are investing God's money in the best way possible. We have safeguards to make sure that we're not getting taken advantage of, that we're not getting hustled, to be good stewards. But ultimately, the truth is, the only foolproof safeguard against getting taken advantage of, is refusing to help at all. That's the only foolproof safeguard. And James does not seem to afford us that luxury. The idea of just not helping a brother or sister in Christ who is in need, or even just a widow or an orphan, James doesn't give us that option. He says that we are called to love them and serve them. And praying for them, it sounds spiritual, but why would we not help them? And James says that if that's your attitude, then your faith is dead. That's a pretty bold statement, too. Pick up in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
We've talked several times about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that important passage that every Jewish child grows up memorizing and reciting multiple times a day, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is talking to this person who seems to be an opponent of his, and the person says, well, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Said what I need to say. And then James says, okay, that's great. You are very orthodox when it comes to the idea of one God. You got that right. You believe the right doctrine. You are doctrinally sound in that regard. But James's whole point is that the implanted word, it isn't just simply a cognitive agreement with a doctrine. It isn't just subscribing to the right teaching. True faith changes us and transforms us. And refuses to sit back and let us be the same people tomorrow or next week or next month or next year that we are today. It's not simply through our own efforts that we change ourselves. It's not about quitting bad habits and starting good habits and just doing cold turkey. No, that's not how we go about it. We trust that God can change us. We trust the spirit that lives inside of us. We trust the implanted word. To make us look more like Christ. It's more than just a cognitive agreement with some doctrine. It goes deeper than that. In that passage about the parable of the sower, Jesus said that three symptoms are seen with this implanted word. There's hearing, there's accepting, and there's bearing fruit. I think we in the church sometimes have done a disservice to people because we've really emphasized the first two hearing and accepting. There were the revival movements that simply had you raise your hand and pray a prayer after a hellfire and brimstone sermon. And then the preacher would send out a newsletter and say, oh my goodness, we were in Indianapolis this week and 5,000 people came to faith in Christ. And that's all well and good. And if you came to faith through that route, I'm not questioning your faith. But we seem to have instituted this mentality that faith is hearing something and agreeing with it. And that's it. And then once you hear it, once you agree with it, then you just sit back and wait until you die to go to heaven. You've done all you need to do. There's no more left of this journey. But that is not the image we see in James. And that is not the image that we saw in the parable of the sower. This faith simply cannot leave us where we are. And if you have a faith that does leave you where you are, that hasn't changed you and molded you and transformed you, You need to re-examine that faith. Pick up in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you're trying to win an argument. A great method is get Abraham on your side. Because Abraham's the guy. And so if somehow you can convince people that you're on Abraham's side, then there's a good chance that you're going to win this argument. And James tries to do that. 
He says, if you look at the life of Abraham, it was more than just cognitive agreement with something. It was more than just believing the right things. The life of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, led to action, led to him doing the unthinkable, taking his only son and offering him as a sacrifice to God. And as Abraham is ready to make that cut, God stops him and says, you passed the test, Abraham. I can truly tell that your faith is genuine. James uses Abraham as an example because Abraham's faith led him to do some pretty crazy things. To get up and leave the only place he knew when he knew no way where he was going. To take his son up on a mountain and make that kind of decision. That kind of faith is a faith that leads to action. And as you read verse 24 again, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you're a good Paulian, then you immediately go back to Romans 3.28. And you say, now wait just a minute here, James. This is not what Paul says. Paul says that we hold that we are justified by faith alone apart from works. And you wouldn't be the first person to think that. Many people throughout the centuries have looked at James and looked at Paul and said, now wait a minute, these two clearly don't agree on this. And wait a minute, if they don't agree, and they're both authors of Scripture, then that means Scripture is contradicting itself. And if Scripture is contradicting itself, then the church is a lie. And I've been living a lie! This isn't exactly what is happening. The way one commentator put it, I appreciated the way she said it, was that James and Paul may be using the same terms, but they're not using the same dictionary. I think that was a good way to put it. You go back to that passage, verse 14, can that faith save him? James is arguing that the kind of faith that isn't like Abraham's, that's not faith. That's a sham faith. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have called cheap grace. That is not the faith that we are called to have. And Paul would say the same thing. Paul would say that if you have a faith that is not working inside of you, that it's transforming you, that it's changing you, that it's making you look more like Christ, then guess what? That's not real faith. And you're not going to be justified by that. And no matter how many works you pair along with it, too bad. Tough luck. James and Paul do not disagree. They're addressing different things issues. And James says that the kind of faith that justifies, the kind of faith that Paul is talking about in Romans 3.28, that's the faith of Abraham. It's the faith of Rahab. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab was a prostitute, not the most upstanding person in the world. And Rahab lived in the land that would soon be delivered to God's people. And as God's people are getting ready to come in and take over this land, they're trying to scout things out. So they send a couple spies out, and they come into Rahab's house. And some people knock on the door, some of Israel's enemies. And they say, you know, we've heard that there are some spies here. Is that true? And what does Abraham do? She hides them. She lies. She sends Israel's enemies out another direction. And when the people of Israel, the spies, come down, 
Rahab says, you know, I've heard of your God. I've heard of that stuff that happened in Egypt. I've heard of what he's doing with you. And, you know, I sympathize with you. For whatever reason, Rahab seems to believe the same kind of stuff that the Israelites believe. She has heard about what has happened, and she can't deny this God of Israel. And it leads her to action. It leads her to sticking her neck out there, risking her life. Because if they had found out that she had lied, guess what? She's dead. And she played a huge part. God used her in a huge way to continue his story, to continue his plan. James's point is not that you have to have works alongside your faith and the two work together and somehow with the mixture of the two, you are justified. James's point is that the kind of faith that justifies is the kind of faith that doesn't allow you to be the same person you were before. That's the main point. Like we talked about earlier, The kind of faith where people can only tell you're a follower of Christ by the bumper sticker on your car or the Facebook posts that you put up, that's not real faith. And that faith, that sham of a faith, James says, is worthless. That your faith is dead. Now this is a hard message to hear. It's in your face. It's harsh. It steps on our toes. It convicts us. But James doesn't sidestep the issue. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus clearly shows that the implanted word, it doesn't just lead to hearing. It doesn't just lead to accepting. It doesn't just lead to Facebook posts or bumper stickers. It leads to bearing fruit. And if the word is not bearing fruit, the question has to be asked, are the roots there? Has it been implanted? Because that faith is a sham. That's the whole point. You know, we often get a little bit defensive when we read passages like this. And the question also has to be asked, if we get defensive about it, then maybe it's a weakness of ours. And maybe it's something worth thinking about. It's difficult. It's hard. But don't ever doubt the fact that we are justified by faith alone, apart from works. And you look back in that passage, James calls the gospel the law of liberty. This law that we subscribe to, this gospel we believe, that demands hearing and acceptance and obedience, it isn't a burden that we can't bear. Because God walks alongside of us each step of the way. And are we called to obey him? You bet. Are we called to follow him? You bet. Are we called to bear fruit? Absolutely. But God helps us along the way. And when we mess up, when we slip up, because we will, we trust in grace. It all comes back to that grace. It all comes back to faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. 
And God, this is a challenging part of your word. It calls us out, it convicts us, it steps on our toes, but God, we need it. Even if we don't think we need it, we do. God, I pray that as we read the book of James, that we will not leave the same people that we were before. That your word will be continually changing our hearts and changing our minds. God, we can't change our own hearts and our own minds all on our own. We need your help. And God, thank you for offering that help to us. I pray that we'll seek your wisdom. I pray that we will let your spirit work in us in ways that we have never let it before. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we are justified by faith. But thank you that the faith that we have is not a faith that allows us to stand still. It's not a faith that allows us to be stagnant. It's not a faith that allows us to continue being ruled by anger. It's not a faith that continues to let us ignore the widow and the orphan, to ignore our tongues, to ignore the least of these. Thank you for that. Thank you that we trust in grace. Thank you that the law we follow is truly a law of liberty. It's not like the law before. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to come here and worship you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, we'll have a couple of our elders standing at the side of the room, and they would be more than willing to talk to you about placing your faith in Christ, hearing the word and accepting the word, and this church will be here for you as you strive to bear fruit, as the faith, the word, the Holy Spirit living inside of you pushes you to bear fruit. If you have questions about our church, if you have prayer requests, they'd be happy to talk to you about those as well.